Let's open up our Bibles once again to the epistle that the inspired Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Ephesus. Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5 as we once again turn to this portion of Scripture where Paul is teaching the church how to apply their faith in their lives. And it helps if I get my notes up here. Ephesians chapter 5. And to help us set the context of where we're at, let's back up to verse number 15, where we were at last week, and let's read 15 to 21. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 to 21. Let us hear the word of the Lord. See then that ye walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Wherefore, be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is. And be not drunk with wine, wherein is excess but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting yourselves to one another, and the fear of God. And may the Lord bless the reading, the hearing and understanding of His Word. Last week, the inspired Apostle Paul began to offer practical advice of how these early converts to Christianity were to proceed forward as children of light in the surrounding culture that they existed in. We learned last week as he admonish them to move forward in their Christian walk. In verse 16, that they were to move forward cautiously. They were to be aware. They were to be cautious. They weren't to be fools. We learned that they were to move forward and proceed in their Christian walk uh, with purpose to redeem the time. There was a certain amount of time each Christian was given, and they were to harness that time for the glory of God. And we saw also in verse 17 that they were always to move forward in their Christian life being open and teachable, seeking to understand the will of the Lord for their lives. Now we concluded last week with verse 18 with the instruction that the Christian is to abstain from ever becoming drunk with wine and they were given the command to be filled with the Spirit. And for our purposes today, we're going to pick up at this point and we're going to move forward today in the passage between 19 and 21 and then in the coming weeks, working with what I'm going to refer to it as the Spirit-filled life. The Spirit-filled life. Now this biblical concept of living a Spirit-filled life, as we noted last week when treating verse 18, it properly is understood that the Christian upon conversion in union with Christ 
receives the Spirit. He is granted God's Spirit. And therefore, being filled with the Spirit does not mean that we are to seek a quantitative greater measure of the Spirit, but rather we are to demonstrate a life that reflects a heart posture that has truly been at the foot of the cross. Living a Spirit-filled life, seeking to be filled with the Spirit, is us very simply but powerfully living a life that reflects a heart posture that we have truly been at the cross of Christ. This is what being filled with the Spirit is. This is what living a Spirit-filled life demonstrates. When one has been at the foot of the cross and begins to live a Spirit-filled life, organically in their life will be produced humility, thankfulness, and selflessness, which results in obedience, faith, wisdom, and joy. And what Paul is doing is something that he's been doing since chapter 4. He's continuing to articulate what that Spirit-filled life looks like, both within our hearts and also in our outward actions, our life. And in fact, today in verses 9 through 21, it nicely summarizes for us what an immediate personal consequence is of someone who in verse 8 has been brought into the light, is a child of light, who has been at the foot of the cross, uh, demonstrates when they are living a life filled in the Spirit. There is praise, there is thankfulness, and there is submitting to one another. So now, catch the context of where we're at. Paul has demonstrated that they are converted and brought into the family of God as children of light. He gives them admonitions last week to walk with caution, purpose, and teachability. But now, he wants them to understand essential to moving forward as children of light that you have got to cultivate a Spirit-filled heart. A Spirit-filled heart is the theme that I want us to operate under as we're seeking to understand what the Spirit of God through the Apostle Paul is trying to communicate to us in verses 19, 20, and 21. And so for verse 19, let us consider cultivating a heart of praise. Verse 19 says, Speak to yourselves in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Now, we mustn't miss the connection between verses 18 and 19 at this point. Last week I focused, and I believe it is the primary emphasis of the application of verse 18, that while on the one hand, Paul is telling them, the things that I was admonishing you to do as early converts to Christianity, as new Christians, moving forward as children of light, in verses 15 and 17, the things I'm telling you to do, you cannot do that if you're drunk. You cannot do that in a stupor of drunkenness. I believe that that was the main thrust of the application of what Paul is communicating. However, there is a parallel here between verses 18 and 19 for our purposes today that we don't want to miss. And here it is. For many of these early Ephesian Christians, just like in your own immediate cultural context, they, their cultural context advocated the idea that if you're going to have any kind of joy, if uh, you're going to have any kind of fun, if you're going to have anything worth praising or being merry about, 
then you have to become, in some way, shape, or form, somewhat intoxicated. Right? That's what they understood that they wanted to do and that needed to be done in order to have a good time. And this is exactly the same cultural context that we are surrounded with as well. And then unfortunately, many of the people in their cultural context bought into the idea and it led to really harmful effects, both physically and spiritually. And instead of ever stopping and asking the question, why do we need alcohol and drunkenness in order to feel you know, good or have a good time, instead of reflecting on the spiritual emptiness in their lives, they participated in these practices. And thus, they ruin their marriages, they they have social problems in their society, so forth and so on. And I'm saying all that to bring the connection of what Paul's really beginning to articulate here in verse 19. Paul wishes to draw out for these Christians that you don't need such outside substance to give you that joy or that praise or that merriment that the surrounding culture is telling you that you need. You don't need to become drunk. You need to be filled with the Spirit because they're children of light, because they are children of the High King. And, and, and as such as they now are found as being adopted by their Heavenly Father, It is a remembrance of the acknowledgement of how they became sons or daughters of the King that gives them that new song. It gives them that song of joy. It gives them that song of praise. These Ephesian Christians, you and I today, we can sing like David did in Psalms 40, verses 2-3. through I have waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined unto me. He heard my cry. He brought me up also out of a horrible pit, out of the miry clay. He has set my feet upon a rock and established my goings. Here it is. And He hath put a new song in my mouth. Even praise unto our God. Many shall see it and fear it and shall trust in the Lord. This new song spoken of by David, this new song that he says the Lord gave him, is something... Paul understood that every single one of these Ephesian Christians possessed and that you possess as children of light. Now, where were they taught this song? Where were they given this source of joy to the extent that they don't need alcohol in order to have a good time or to be happy or to be merry or to love their life, to love what God's doing for them in their life? Where did they learn this song? They were taught this song at the foot of the cross. They were taught this song at the foot of the cross where by faith they were brought low in humble repentance and faith and believing the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Where they believed that there at the foot of the cross they could find forgiveness of their sins. They learned and were taught this melody, this new song that brings joy. There at the foot of Calvary where they believed by the Spirit of God's grace, that their individual sins are indeed forgiven by the atoning blood of Jesus Christ. And there at the foot of the cross, they believe that the wrathful God or the wrathful eye of God upon all of their transgressions was turned aside by the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And that His purity now is granted to them. That's where they learned the song. That's the joy that that is going to be ever on their lips, on the frontlets of their minds, to bring forth and well up from within their heart 
the admonition that Paul's given them that's critical for having a cultivation of a spirit-filled heart of praise is this new song and ever remembering of what you have been given in Christ. This was the origin of the new song. This is the source of what's going to well up for them to express the psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs that, they, that Paul is admonishing them to sing. And so understanding then the origin of the song, the origin of their joy, understanding then the root of where this spring, this fountain comes from, remember Paul's giving them here practical advice of how to move forward as a Christian. And so now what he does simply but very powerfully with much wisdom, he tells them, sing, sing, speak, sing to yourselves in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Now, I very purposefully said in the context of Paul trying to help these young Christians move forward in their Christians' lives that he simply but wisely told them to sing. You see, as Christians, still in the process of sanctification, go back to chapter 4, verses 22-32, Paul understood that it's crucial, it's, it's so important for us who wish to have a Spirit-filled life that we cultivate a heart of praise through the use of our voices in the act of singing. Now, Paul, inspired by the Spirit, he writes another letter to the Colossian church. And he brings to the surface this exact same teaching there. And for our purposes today, I want to bring that text alongside of where we're at today to help us to see that Paul is really giving us some good instructions of how to be filled with the Spirit in connection with singing, using our voices to give praise unto the Lord. It's Colossians 3, verses 15 and 16. He says there, I'll read it if you don't want to turn there. He says, Let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also you are called in one body, and be ye thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, applying the word, teaching and admonishing one another, here it is for our purposes today, in psalms and hymns and spiritual song, singing with grace in your hearts unto the Lord. Well, why is Paul here at the beginning of today further wanting to equip them in the practice of their faith, already warning them to be cautious, be purposeful, be teachable. Hey, and make sure you're singing. Make sure you're a singing people. Why all this stress and why all this emphasis on Nolan, the, the act the use of our vocal cords of lifting up the song that's within our hearts that we were given at the cross. Why is there so much emphasis on singing? Well, to try to find the reason, I want us to walk together through just seven brief, I emphasize the word brief, seven brief considerations of what singing does for you. First of all, when we do this, sing amongst ourselves to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, very simply, we're obeying God. We're obeying God. It's an act of obedience. Songs of praise, which is what's being described here, 
in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Collectively, those are songs of praise, their worship unto God. I've already articulated they emanate from a changed heart, right? And while that's something that springs forward in a voluntary way amongst ourselves, it ought to at least organically be sung from someone who's really been at the foot of the cross. Let us be clear and acknowledge that singing also is not optional for us as God's people, but it's actually commanded of our God, our great, holy, benevolent God. He wants us to sing unto him. And so there is a valid biblical mandate that we are to do it whether we feel like doing it or not. This comes through in just two examples. I'll give you Psalms 9-11. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. God's people recognize that He is the one on high. He is the one that is majestic, lifted up, sitting upon Zion. And He commands us to sing praises unto Him. Psalms 49-11. Praise the Lord. There's the command. Sing to the Lord a new song. We just talked about where the new song comes from. His praise in the assembly of the godly. Notice the context of where the praise is lifted up. It's lifted up. It's commanded in the assembly of the godly. Thus, just these two verses. I said brief considerations. This is the first one. Thus, not to give praise to your Redeemer God is to disobey Him. But when we sing, Levi, it is, if you think about it, no matter how hard of a week you've had, maybe you have disobeyed several times and you've had to go to the foot of the cross and you've had to ask for forgiveness and you've had to repent and you've had to you know, ask the Lord's grace to move forward in your life. When you come to God's house on Sunday, guess what, young brother? There's one thing that you can perfectly obey in. Sing praises to God. Sing praises to Him. Secondly, why Paul stresses so much emphasis on this cultivation of praise in our heart and why it's vital in our singing as the people of God moving forward in our Christian lives? Well, in Colossians 3.16 that I just read, it clearly lays out for us that singing stands alongside of the words of Christ that dwell with us. The teaching and the admonishing. It stands alongside of the preached Word of God. And so singing... Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs is one of two great ways, one of two great ways by which God has ordained for us to what? Stay rooted and strengthened in His Word. Stay rooted and strengthened in His Word. So when you sing, your hearts are strengthened in the truths of Scripture, especially this could be a consideration linked with The admonition to sing psalms here in this verse. So just think about it. When you're singing God's words, or you're singing any kind of spiritual song that contains the truth of God's word, when you sing, you're testifying to the truth of those words and what they possess. Therefore, we must appreciate as God's people Hearing this admonition from Paul, giving us this counsel to use our voices to sing, it's our singing is much more than just a warm-up act before we hear the sermon. Our, our singing, Brother Scott, it's much more than just some filler time right, in the corporate worship service until we get to some teaching or fellowship time or whatever, right, or the praying time. 
No. It is us teaching and admonishing one another to the truths of God's word and us lifting up our voices together that we affirm that these are truth. Thirdly, when we sing, we are building up one another. This is overlapping a little bit with the second one. Notice in our text today, verse 19, he says, speak to yourselves in psalms and spiritual songs. Now what's interesting, in Colossians 3 where Paul is stressing the same emphasis about singing in the church. We don't have it in Ephesians 5. Ephesians chapter 4 emphasized a lot about our unity, right? But in Colossians 3, the Apostle Paul gives that admonition about singing on the heels of admonition and encouragement to bear with one another, to suffer with one another, to love one another. And so on the heels of that in Colossians 3, beginning with verse 13, Paul comes to this and he says, sing amongst yourself, admonish one another, teach one another in your singing. And so in this sense, you see, we understand that when we sing together as a church family, when I hear Brother Mark singing, when I, when I hear the sisters in the church singing, we are as a church family confessing the faith of Christ Sunday after Sunday on a repeated basis. And so this continual affirmation of what we all are singing that Christ has done for us and our continual commitment to the truth of it is building one another up. And so, AJ, if you're not singing and and you're kind of over there whispering, brother, you see, I, I need to hear that. I need to hear you that you really believe Jesus should be crowned Lord of all. Because if I'm having a bad week, Brother Scott, and I hear you singing, knowing what you're going through, dear brother, crown Him Lord of all, it'll make my little petty things that I may be going through, you know what I'm saying, Uh, something to be ashamed of. And I'm hearing the witness and the testimony of this brother in the church who's carrying at this point in time a heavier burden of mine. Brother, you know there's a silver lining on the cloud, right? God is with you. He will give you strength. But when I hear that, Brother Mark, right? You're hearing what? You're hearing the commitment of this brother in song and praise. And you can't tell me that doesn't build you up. It edifies you. It lifts you up. It strengthens your own faith, right? God's power and His grace, His sustaining, preserving abilities are real in the life of the church and my fellow brothers and sisters. So now, you see how this cultivates a heart of praise? I hear God working in God's people's lives through their songs and through their voices. But not only does it build us up, but it also, it's so important we sing as God's people because it builds other people up. Just think if someone were to come to our midst today, they're an unbeliever, and they hear a group of people singing together, uh, acknowledging the power of Jesus Christ uh, and their commitment to it. They hear that. And so what that does is not only does it keep, keep as I just tried to apply it, the church in a state of what I would say a, a healthy spiritual balance, all right? But listen, guys, when, when, when an unbeliever were to come in here and he hears us who have been given that new song, despite what is going on, and they hear us singing as if we really mean it, 
that we've really experienced these things and, 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 and we really are committed to these things, it creates an environment of evangelism, a nursery, if I may, for the Holy Spirit to operate through our praises, the doctrinal truths that we are praising in the mind and the heart of that unbeliever. But if an unbeliever were to be in our midst, and we're saying like a bunch of bumps on a log, what are they going to think? There's no power. There's no truth in this gospel that transforms life, lives. I, I don't think these people really were such bad people and were brought from death to life like that pastor's up there saying happens in conversion. Right? I mean, shouldn't the excitement and the, ge- the zeal and the joy that is evidenced within our singing in our local churches be different than like a Moose Lodge meeting or something where a guy's just going to get up and talk. I mean, you know what I mean? I mean, shouldn't there be something from us that emanates forward that this stuff is real and people can tell by our singing? They hear us worshiping the God who we say has done these things for us. It builds us up in the church together, thirdly, but it also creates a natural environment for evangelism to happen. Fourth, when we sing, have you ever thought about this? You're engaged in spiritual warfare. And you're engaged in it in the offensive, not the defensive. How so? Well, I don't know about you, but I can't think of many other stances that you or I could take that would identify you with Jesus and your commitment to Jesus over and against Satan and his demons than when you're worshiping and you're lifting up your voice to him. I mean, it it immediately identifies you as a worshiper of Christ, right? Not only in the physical realm here, as other men can see, but also in the spiritual realm. Satan knows you're worshiping Christ and he hates it. The demons know you're using your voice, Nolan, not to curse, not to, as Paul has already admonished us, uh, to, to use it for filthy and crude, inappropriate jesting and, 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 and language. Oh, but you're using it to glorify Christ. You see, it's spiritual warfare. What possibly can be more hated by the evil one, brothers and sisters, than a posture of a believer such as you and I offering up worship unto the crown of our Lord Jesus Christ, even when our weeks have been unpraiseworthy. Still committed to the crown. I'm still holding on to the cross. Satan, you can kick me in the teeth all week long, but I'm not letting go of the cross. So I'm here to praise Him. I'm here to sing to Him. Hear it throughout all of the echoes and the chambers of a dark hell. Christ, Christ should be crowned Lord of all. And then what does Satan like to do? Oh, he likes to bring forth our conscience, our failures of what maybe the circumstances in our life are currently exhibiting, so forth and so on. What are you going to do? Wage war, brothers and sisters. Paul's telling you this is why it's so important to sing because it's part of your spiritual warfare. But fifthly, 
when you see overlapping on the fourth one a little bit here, coming at it from a different angle, when you see you're spiritually strengthening your bones and your soul and your understanding of your Christian armor for present, current, and future trials and afflictions. Think with me, church, to the book of Acts, chapter 16. What's going on there, Levi? Well, that's the time when Paul and Silas, they were taken and doing good deeds. They were preaching the gospel. They were sharing the light. They were sharing the new songs there that they were given to a dark, dying, pagan, Gentile world. Little specks of light in this dark community. And instead of being blessed, instead of you know doors just opening up for them, they were handcuffed and they were put in jail. They were persecuted. But what did they do in Acts 16.25? What does the Bible testify that they were doing in that midst of affliction? They were being persevered through the joy of the new song and singing unto God. Singing unto God. Now, the truth of the power of singing that Paul's admonishing that we cultivate and that we do in hearts of praise in order that we may maintain this feeling of the Spirit, be strengthened in the Spirit for our Christian walk. It's been well understood by the persecuted church, the martyrs throughout church history. I went to persecutionblog.com and I pulled this off just to kind of amplify the, uh, the, the effects of singing in the lives of us when we're currently going through trials. Listen to what one pastor in prison said. Quote, when we were in prison, we sang almost every day because Christ was alive in us. We put chains, oh, I'm sorry, they, the people that put them in prison, they put chains on our hands and our feet. They chained, they chained us in order to compound our sorrows. Yet we discovered that the chains were splendid musical instruments that could be used to accompany our singing. You see, church, our persecuted brothers, beginning with Paul and Silas, demonstrated for us the truth that Paul knows is essential for us to move forward as Christians, as children of light, is that when we sing, it strengthens our bones. It equips us for not only current trials that we got to get through, but also strengthens us for future trials. Singing strengthens you and I, And it helps preserve us in the faith through all of our trials and our afflictions. Sixthly, when you sing, you're following a God-designed pathway to lead you to joy. Paul understood this. Here's just a sampling of the Psalms of what they say about singing in connection with God's joy that accompanies it. This is God's designed way to have joy in your life as a Christian moving forward. Psalms 5.11 But let all those that put their trust in thee rejoice. Let them ever shout for joy because thou defendest them. Let them also that love thy name be joyful in me. You cannot escape the fact that joy in that passage is uh, inseparably linked to praise and rejoicing and singing. Remember, we're trying to understand why Paul's putting all this emphasis on us as Christians as singing. Psalm 63, 7, one translation has it. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. And if these texts aren't explicit enough connecting our singing, our vocal singing unto God, with joy, God's designed path to joy, remember the witness from the New Testament in James 5, 13. 
Is any, any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any uh, merry? Let him sing psalms. Let him sing praises. If you were to take the time and study Scripture on this connection between singing and joy in your life, you would notice that sometimes singing gives birth to joy. And sometimes joy gives birth to singing. However, persistently we see in the Scriptures joy and singing are ultimately in some way spiritually bound together. You cannot study one of these things without encountering the other. Lastly, why Paul is emphasizing us as Christians to sing is that when we sing, we glorify God. Well, we considered that true obedience to His command is to be worshipped in, in our singing. Our hearts are strengthened in His Word and the doctrinal truths that we affirm amongst ourselves in our singing. It helps build ourselves up and others. Fourthly, we're making war against Satan and all the demons in hell. And it also preserves and strengthens us for present and future trials. But it also, by singing, continues us to pursue the glory of God. This is who we're singing to. You see that in verse 19. All of our singing, all of these things that come as a blessing and benefits to us from singing that Paul's admonishing us to do, are all done because the object of our singing is the Lord Himself, the one that gave us this new song. Notice in the text, uh, we do this unto the Lord. We do this to God. Colossians chapter 3, the same thing. The, the object was our triune God. He is the object of all of our praise. Our triune God is our object, brothers and sisters, and our affections voiced with our lips. They are the instruments. And when we sing, all of those things we just talked about come together and they give Him the glory that He deserves. So now when we go into the next song we got to sing today, keep all of that stuff, that truth in mind. And see here why Paul's telling us in the context of this passage to sing to ourselves in psalms, in hymns, in spiritual songs. Don't miss the point here. Don't get sidetracked by the temptation to springboard from this verse to prove a point about the use of instruments in the church like some may do, while indeed you would go to this text to try to talk about that issue. Oh, brothers in this church, don't get sidetracked with trying to prove or disprove the aspect of exclusivity in the church. While you indeed would go here to use this text to try to search out that truth. No, no, no. Clearly, what Paul's main thrust of emphasis here to these Christians who are moving forward in their young Christian life in the deceitful, corrupted world around them is to be careful to make sure you maintain, you cultivate, you begin to foster. Oh, don't lose the spark of the song of praise that you have been given. Don't lose focus of what the purpose of offering the praise is all about. It is about the glorification of the God who sovereignly saved you. Brothers and sisters, that's why Paul has this in verse 19. And so while we could go from this text and get into all those hay fields, I'm telling you, the point of this passage here is because Paul's telling these Christians, these young Christians, oh, cultivate, ever cultivate, 
ever nurture, ever foster amongst yourselves this heart of praise. This heart of praise. Now having stressed the importance and the relationship of living a Spirit-filled life and its connection with singing, expressions of praises unto the Lord, Paul now gives another command of equal importance in order to be filled with the Spirit. And that is to cultivate a heart of thankfulness amongst ourselves. Moving to verse 20. He says, Give thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Cultivating a heart of thankfulness. Now Paul brings once again to their attention the matter of thankfulness. He's already done this once in chapter 5, back in verse 4. And we treated that matter more, more in depth then than we're going to today. It was then that you may recall that the apostle was wishing to help them in understanding that their tongues were to be instruments of not crude and improper speech, but rather speech that is to be used for giving thanks unto God. The purpose for Paul bringing up the issue of giving thanks again here in verse 20 is to simply stress to these Christians just how important it is related, the giving of thanks in all things to living a Spirit-filled life. Oh, beloved, here is where we find our challenge. Amen? Giving thanks to God in all things. I caught myself just this week Murmuring and complaining. And in the family worship, I said, you know what, guys? We ought to be thankful. We got a yard to weed eat, Brother Cox. <laughs> young boys, young men in the church who helped your dads with lawn care, you ought to be thankful. You got a yard to mow and leaves to rake. Think about that. We can get caught in the, the everyday things, you know, and we begin to take these things for granted. Right? Relationships. People. We ought to be thankful that these relationships and these people, they come with messy, icky, prickly confrontations and things we have, situations we've got to deal with. Because it's, it's especially in the context of a family, you know, this is someone who God's placed in my life that exhibits to me in many other ways the character of Christ and allows me to exhibit the character of Christ to them. I'm thankful for so-and-so. I'm thankful for this. I'm thankful for that. And brothers and sisters, this is where we get challenged as Christians because if we're honest with ourselves, many times in the Christian church, our lives, our witness can be dominated with complaining and murmuring. And this is exactly what will kill a spirit-filled life. This is why Paul admonishes these Christians in the church of Philippi to, quote, do all things without murmuring and disputings, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom you are to shine as lights to the world. Spirit-filled living must continue to foster and cultivate a heart of thankfulness through the giving of thanks to God in praise. As I said, if we're honest with ourselves, instead of thankfulness, many times we feel the need to murmur and complain about something. However, listen closely. We're talking about in our first message, church culture, things of that nature. Here's where this really meets the road. The willingness to tolerate such an attitude of one's own life 
of murmuring and complaining and or the culture or life of a local church leaves everyone open to unjust blames and mischaracterizations or possibly ridicule from the outside if we allow that to dominate the culture of our church. Complaining, murmuring, okay? Out of balance, you see. An individual who is constantly murmuring, constantly complaining, has either never possessed or has seriously lost focus of the joyful song that they received upon their conversion. And furthermore, such an attitude will prevent a person from living a spirit-filled life, which Paul is describing in this section of his letter. Therefore, brothers and sisters, be cautious of ever allowing such an attitude to take residence in your heart, which I confess I've done. I become this shriveled up prune, always looking at the worst and the dark side of things in the church, looking at the dark side of the situations in my family or in my personal sanctification of life, And it sucks the joy in the new song right out of my spirit-filled life. When you sense it taking root in your local church fellowship, be that brother or sister who offers the firm but gentle reminder that we must watch ourselves and not fall in the ditch of being the constant or overbearing complainer. Because when members of a church refuse to stand up to an undisciplined brother who has fallen into this sin and sowing the seeds of murmuring and constant complaining. I'm emphasizing constant there. When this is allowed to happen, the rebukes will come from both within the Christian community and also the outside of the congregation, demonstrating the truth of Philippians 2, 14 and 16. And so, brothers and sisters in the church, We have to walk alongside one another. And when we see one another fall into that ditch of apathy, who wants to always look at the dark side, always just point out the pessimism of everything, what do we got to do? Oh, but point them to the cross. Point them to what Jesus is doing. Point them to the great things that are being done in the name of Jesus Christ. You see what I'm saying? There has to be balance, brothers and sisters. Now allow me to be clear here about something. I do not wish to be misunderstood. Meaning, I understand that we're all humans. And so we must readily acknowledge that there will be times of disagreement and opinions between ourselves within the church. But when those things are related to secondary issues, just because we disagree does not mean we have to become disagreeable or unchristlike in our actions and our demeanors to one another as brothers and sisters in the local church. An attitude of complaining, which often plagues many gatherings of God's people, can largely, if not altogether, be avoided if we would just simply follow Paul's inspired instructions here to give thanks to God and the name of Jesus Christ for what Christ has done, for what Christ is now doing, and what He promises to do. Let our gatherings, in other words, be more known for the giving of thanks of what God is doing presently in our lives and He will promise to do than what He's not, quote-unquote, doing or what we don't like about what He's doing. Does that make sense? Cultivate a culture in a church. Cultivate a heart in your own life of giving thankfulness if you ever wish to live a Spirit-filled life. Now, having stressed the important relationships of living a Spirit-filled life, 
in connection with singing expressions of praise unto the Lord and also of giving thanks unto the Lord for all things. Now Paul gives another commandment that is equal of importance of being filled with the Spirit in verse 20. This is our last heading, cultivate a heart of submission to God. I'm sorry, verse 21. Cultivate a heart of submission unto God. He says in verse 21, submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Submitting yourselves one to another. Now, Paul is not saying that um, we submit one to another in the sense of that it's all equally, everybody has equal authority in the church. He's not saying that. He's not saying you disregard all authority structures because you'll see that come to the surface in the the following text when he starts dealing with um, God-ordained authority structures in marriage and uh, parent-child relationships, things of that nature. So he's not telling parents to submit to children. And, you know, and, and he's not telling um, sister so-and-so, uh, Jen over here to submit to brother Mark. That, that's not what he's saying. But what he's saying there in order to cultivate uh, a spirit-filled heart is when we as the, child, the children of God in the local church context, when we lose focus of the idea that all of us are under authority in the fear of God, this is the ultimate authority, there will be in the house of God much distraction, much confusion, much bickering, much division, so forth and so on. And what Paul is saying here, vital to a spirit-filled life, is that when we give our songs of praise, when we cultivate a heart of thanksgiving for all things, and when we come to His presence in His house on the Lord's Day, with a heart that's submitted to the authority of God and His local church, there is a continued maintaining of the Spirit-filled life in an individual's um, walk with the Lord. Case in point. Um, have you ever been, and perhaps you're here today and you've actually experienced this, have you ever been in the context where there's something going on in a church and it's outside of your control? It could be... Um, I don't know, a position the church has taken on a particular teaching. It could be a majority of beliefs that maybe a majority of the members of the church hold to. And it just doesn't sit well with you. And you may be even in the right, okay? And there's ways of dealing with that. The Bible's sufficient for that. The Bible, you know, has ways of how you're supposed to handle that type of situation. But let me ask you a question. When you have found yourself in those positions... And you, you come into that, that assembly, right? It's really hard to submit to that. And while you're there to be edified and encouraged and strengthened in the things of the Lord, it's, it's hard to have a spirit-filled life on the whole time. You can just can't get your mind off the fact of how unbiblical some of the things are, right? And so it, it, it robs you of a spirit-filled life. And so... As I said, the Bible has ways of handling that. You need to A, follow those biblical patterns and seek to work those things out in the local church context and try to bring biblical reformation or perhaps be open to the fact that you may be wrong about something. 
And then once you've discovered and hashed it out in the Word of God, not running and avoiding from the issue, but lay it out in God's Word, and you come to the point, you know what? Be willing and teachable to say, I was wrong. I was wrong. I misunderstood that, I guess. Or I didn't know this, or I didn't know that. And guess what? Oh boy, you talk about a ball and chain coming off of you. I mean, it just, it just rolls right off. And then that feeling of the Spirit once again comes in. And, and, and you can worship the Lord. You have that song of praise. There's not this dark cloud hanging over to you that you're bringing into church every Sunday. However, if it is something, since I'm going down that trail, it is something that is unbiblical and people aren't, whether in leadership or the culture of a church being dominated by an unbiblical practice or teaching, you have to biblically separate from that church. Guess what? Isn't it amazing how there's a new wind in your sails? <laughs> I mean, now you can come and you can submit one to another to the affirmation of the truth that you all are in unison declaring unto the Lord. This is what Paul's outlining here. And we do it all, going back to our first mess, or our reading in Isaiah this morning of Shebna being replaced, we do it all not because of a man, not because of a dominant personality in the church, um, anything like that. We do it in the fear of God. We do that. We have that reverence, that respect for the authority in the local church because of the fear of God. And we submit to that for the fear of God. Not because someone's personality or something of that nature. Now, I've talked a lot about Paul equipping these early Christians with things that will help them and aid them to possess a spirit-filled life. But I would be remiss to assume that everyone that's hearing me today has actually been granted a new song by Christ. To even take the first, song, the first step in, in opening up their mouth and truly from their heart singing praises unto Christ who should be crowned Lord of all. And so with all of that said, if there's anyone here today that has truly never been to the foot of the cross of Calvary, has never been shown by God's grace the truth that their sins have placed Christ upon that bloody cross to remove every stain and every spot from the transgressions that they've committed. I pray to God Almighty that His Spirit would visit you this very moment. That he would give you understanding to see that it was your sins that placed Christ upon the cross. And he would give you eyes of faith to see that it is only in Jesus that you can have forgiveness of those sins. And that you can be adopted by your creator, your heavenly father, and live with Christ forever, eternally more. By the way, when you come to this next song that we're going to sing, you can sing in faith. You can sing as a true son, a true daughter. Today, you can sing as a child of Zion, be adopted by God right now. Christ in my message right now is being offered to you. And He's calling you to repent and to believe the truth of the gospel. Today could be the day that you begin to speak to all of us in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Today can be the day that a new well of thankfulness opens up in your heart. Today could be that day where you begin to understand 
what true biblical submission is all about under the crown and the glory of God Almighty. Today could be a day of a new beginning in your life, the chapter of where you're at in your life. Now, for the sake, oh, wow. <laughs> what, what wonderful, indescribable things we have in this passage for us. Let us, brothers and sisters, shake off the dust of just, you know, life that's going to come at us Monday through Friday, 8 to 5, and even into the weekend, amen? Even maybe perhaps on the way to the drive here. I'm not going to ask any dads to raise their hand to say, How, did you have to do some parenting this morning? I did, right? Oh, but man, do I have so much to be thankful for. So much in the cross of Christ and the glory of God. Brothers and sisters, let us be, as Philippians 2 said, the light, not the nagging, complaining specks of negativity in our families and workplaces. Let us be the light in our workplaces. We serve a risen Savior who is working all things out to the glory and the good of those who love Him. So let us live our lives like we believe that. Amen? All right. Let us close with a word of prayer. Our triune God in heaven, we, Lord, acknowledge in this text that you reveal yourself as triune. We are called to be filled by your spirit. We are called to give thanks and give praises unto you, O Father in heaven, in the name of thy only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we understand, O God, as you being triune, that we need the help of you, O Lord, in our lives in these different areas that we are commanded by Paul to cultivate in our lives. Because, Lord, we confess to you that we are weak. We confess to you, Lord, that the littlest of things gets to us, Lord, and gets us sidetracked. And, Father, seeks to rob us of our joy and our praise. Lord, as we are about to prepare and, and come before the Holy Supper of Christ, let us be renewed in the finished work of Jesus. Let us be renewed in the understanding of the gospel message that at the foot of the cross, we are pardoned, that we, we have been uh, totally forgiven by the blood and the atoning sacrificial work of our Lord and our Savior. I pray, O oh God, that we would today leave this place uh, seeking, Lord, to shake off any attitudes in our hearts that have grown residency. It's so easy to happen, O oh Lord, of just being nagging and complaining. And Lord, it just it, it's just a wicked, a ugly thing that can quickly dominate our attitude, our outlook in our life. And oh God, forgive us, I pray. Forgive us, Lord, of not seeing your hidden sovereign hand in all things, which we know is good, which we know is most wise and knows what's best. Oh, but God, consider the weakness and the frailties of your sons and daughters. Send thy spirit to give us renewed eyes of faith, renewed eyes of strength. Help us, O oh Lord, to trust you more. Help us to, Lord, uh, lift high above these earthly vessels and, and look down more, Lord, with spiritual eyes and, and understand that you are truly are working all things out. God, minister, I pray, to the downtrodden today amongst us. Minister to the weak, Lord. Oh, Lord, I pray that you would help us. 
Strengthen us this week and the coming week, O Lord, to be the salt, O God, and the light to the people that we work with, the people that we're around, and even in our immediate family context. Many of us are going to be around extended family members tomorrow, uh, be a Memorial Day. And, and I pray, O Lord, that they witness in us people that are thankful, people that understand that our God is on the throne, and that He is working out all things for the good of us who love Him. This is especially important, God, in the times in which we live. Oh Lord, it is going to, I believe, wax colder. But help us learn from uh, Paul and Silas. Help us learn from the persecuted pastor that we read about, his testimony in the midst of persecution, that we will sing unto you. For we know you are sovereign and on the throne. Bless us, O God. Take now by the power of your spirit and apply uh, these truths in so many more ways than my words could ever express. Nurture us, help us, heal us, grow us, mature us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us have a moment of silence before the Lord's Supper.